this room makes having a band and kind of get out a little bit of a challenge here, but we'll make do. <laughs> uh, what a blessing. Uh, I'm excited about being able to include more people in just daily to what's happening in the life of the church, and, and uh, it's a blessing. Uh, thank you guys for using your gifts to serve us in this way, and uh, man, I, I look forward to how the Lord's going to continue to do that. Um, but uh, we're here today to talk about, just to continue in our series, looking at our core values uh, by looking at family. Family is one of the things that drives us, one of those, those values that define us. And it's probably, of all the, the values that we talk about, it's probably the most coveted value. I hope you're not shaking your head or scratching your head and just kind of wondering, well, families, if family is a big value, then why do we have a bunch of single college students in here? Well, that's what the Lord has given us, but it's still, <laughs> it's still uh, where we're at. But this is important because we're going to be thinking about this. I'm guessing that most of you in here have a desire to one day be married and have kids, right? Am I wrong? We've got a bunch of eunuchs in here? No? I don't think so. So this is a good thing for us to look at. But I tell you, uh, because it's such a coveted value, we the elders had a tough time deciding on who was going to preach on this one. We, we really deliberated. And, and because I'm the lead planter, the lot fell on me. Okay, So that's why I'm up here. But to be totally honest with you, the reason why we had such a hard time deciding why we deliberated so strongly uh, was not because we were all clamoring to get the opportunity to preach on family. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We were fighting not to teach on this subject. The reason we look, took so long to decide is because none of us wanted to. I mean, being, but, you know, being the gracious leader that I am, I went ahead and took one for the team because, well, I mean, let's face it, uh, Jim and Caleb are chicken. You know, and uh, they just couldn't hack it. I'm the man, and so I'm going to do it, right? But uh, today we're looking at the core value of family, and family is a central priority to Redeemer Church. But for us, it was the most dreaded value to cover because where things like um, transformation and love and worship are conceptual in nature and where truth and proclamation and, and worship are, are objective, family is pragmatic and deeply, deeply personal. It's deeply personal. Family is a mirror to our souls. It is a window into depravity into the remaining indwelling sin that resides in each one of us. Now, we can put up a good front when we come here on Sundays and we can talk about how we worship because we're in the context of worship. We can, we can sit up here and we can talk about preaching because or proclamation of the gospel because that's what we're doing right here. But we can't keep up a front at home. We can't and we won't. Your family sees you for who you are with all your failings, with all your sins, with all your struggles, they see the worst of you. And if you have kids, it goes beyond that. Not only do they see your sin, they reflect your sin, and then they mimic your sin. 
If you're a parent here and you happen to be struggling with identifying the sin in your own heart, look at your kids. How are they sinning? If you want to know how I struggle, what my sin struggles are, what my wife's sin struggles are, you need only look at Layden, Gabe, and Claire, and you can tell pretty quickly what our sin struggles are. They reveal. They are a mirror to your soul. And so we, we can put our best foot forward in public, but we can't and we won't at home. We won't. And in, not, and in failing to do that, we set the course for generation after generation after generation after generation. And this is why it is a big deal for us. This is why we make it one of our core values. And so you need to know right off the bat that as I'm coming up here and I'm preaching to you on the family, it's not because I have it all figured out. It's not because my family is perfect. If you think that, you're wrong and you need to spend more time with us. And you're welcome to. But I'm up here proclaiming God's infallible truth, not my fallible example. Okay? That's why I'm here. Family is central to God's plan. Yet the biblical view of family is being attacked in every single way in our society. In many ways, this is the front line of, of the battle against the powers of darkness in the life of a Christian. The, God's intention for courtship, for sex, for marriage, for parenting, for spiritual leadership has been thrown out the window in our culture today. In every way. And if we're going to be true to God's plan, to God's purpose, to God's intention, we have to take the family seriously. We have to. We cannot let it take a back seat in our pursuit of God. That's kind of a pun there, kind of an irony of ironies as I was thinking about that. Like, because our kids are in the back seat, right? Yeah? Anyway. I'm good. (laughs) Now, I can't possibly cover everything there is to cover on this topic. But I'm just going to introduce some major concepts, some things that undergird uh, the family some things that we need to think deeply about. So this, this topic rep- applies intimately to each one of us. So even though you're single here, we've already established that none of you are called to be eunuchs, right? Probably none of you or a few of you have the gift of singleness. And so we need to be thinking about this. And even if you were gifted with singleness, you're still part of God's extended family. You're still a part of the church, You still need to know these concepts and be able to apply these concepts as you serve the body of Christ, as you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, your family. And for those of you who do desire to be married and have kids one day, you need to be thinking about it now. You need to be dealing about it with it now, not after the fact, not after you've done some major things and really screwed your kids up and you're trying to, you know, fix it. I mean, we're going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. But as much as we can, we need to be thinking about and informing our hearts and our minds now in this issue. So turn with me um, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. That's page 984 in the Bibles there in the chair. So I should have wrote down my page number. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21. It says, Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I couldn't possibly handle the big family text. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 4. But I encourage you to, after this is over, to go home and to read that passage because it will fill out more of what we're talking about today. Okay? So go home. Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4. Now, in some circles, not too far from where we are, in fact, just a few blocks over, some people would gasp if you read this in front of them. And given our context, the fact that we're in a college town... It's quite possible that there are a few of you sitting here today that might be gritting your teeth a little bit at the idea of what this passage has just said. Right? But we have to deal with it. This is God's word to us. We can't just ignore it, and we can't just redefine it. We have to deal with it for what it is. God's inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word to us. Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. Chapter 1 flushes out this idea that Christ is, he is preeminent over all things. And then chapter 2 spends time clearing up some misconceptions about what that means in the lives of believers. How Christ is to truly be supreme in their lives. And then chapter 3 gets really practical. Verses 1 through 8 talks about the supremacy of Christ in daily living. Chapter, or verses 9 through 17 cover Christ's supremacy in the life of the church. And here, in verses 18 through 21, it covers the supremacy of Christ in the home, in the family. And if you are going to, if you are truly a Christian, if you are truly bearing the name of Christ and putting Him first in your life, this is how you are to do that in the context of the home. If Christ is going to be supreme in your life, because Christ is preeminent, Paul's saying this is how you do it. When wives are submitting to their husbands, when husbands are lovingly leading their wives, when children are obeying their parents, and when parents are diligent to train up their children. This is how Christ is honored in the home. These commands were given because by nature we buck against them. Our society bucks against them. The fallen, evil world that we live in bucks against them. And our own innate desire to rebel against God bucks against this. So if you're sitting here and you're kind of thinking to yourself, man, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. You kind of have to wonder, what, why are you asking that question? Why are you hesitant? Why are you gritting your teeth? Okay? This is God's word to us. And so we're given these instructions that we might glorify Christ in our homes. Because here's the thing, guys. Christ is not displayed as, glo- as glorious when you are alone with God. When it's just me and Jesus. Christ is displayed as glorious when we live according to God's word. When it becomes evident, particularly in the home. And so we need to look at each of these roles and responsibilities in turn. Verse 18 tells us that Christ is glorified when wives submit to their husbands. Now most of us assume a family is only a family when you have kids, right? Is that what you think about family? No. No? 
I'm glad to hear that because that's not true. That's absolutely not true. In creation, God made man and woman in his image. And it was then that he considered what he had made very good. Man and woman together in intimate relationship together, that is what reflected the image of God, that relational aspect of God. And it was considered very good. And this was before they ever had children. Okay? Then God, creating the woman, establishes marriage. And in Genesis 2, 24, it says, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Man takes the initiative to leave his family of origin and to go and take for himself a wife. And in holding fast to her, in cleaving to her, they become a new family. Before, it's not, it's not when they reproduce, right? I mean, Abraham and Sarah were not less of a family, though they spent most of their lives barren, right? It wasn't when Isaac finally showed up on the scene that they truly became a family. And so we need to, we need to be careful to redefine this. We've got some engage, you know, we, we, I mean, Jason, you're engaged right now. You're thinking about it, and I don't want you to think, you know, for a second that you're less than a family until you happen to have a son or a daughter, right? You're not. It's when you get married that you become a family. And so in addressing the topic of family, we have to start thinking about marriage because this is where the family begins. And this is where Paul sees it beginning. And that's why he himself starts with husbands and wives. And so Paul begins by addressing marriage by saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He's saying, Wives, be subject to your husbands. This word submit means a voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. A voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. It's used in the Bible to describe the submission of wives to husbands, of children to parents, of individuals to governing authorities, to, for, to, from servants to submit to their masters, or in, in our case, employees to their employers, for believers to submit to the elders in their church and to one another, and for all things to be subject to Christ. That's how that word is used in the New Testament. But what does that mean? I mean, is Paul suggesting that women are inferior to men because, and, and therefore they should submit to their superiors? Is Paul calling them to a blind, passive, servile, childish submission? Is, is Paul suggesting that women should follow their husbands into sin or to endure his abuse or to not stand for truth and goodness and basically let him do whatever he wants? The answer to all of these is a resounding no. That's not what he's calling them too. Paul's not suggesting that women never speak or never question sin, to never be active or creative or never stand for truth or what is right, but that they do all things with a yieldedness to a recognition of the established authority that God has put in place, first to Christ and then to their husbands. So what is it? What is submission? You know what? Yeah, we're doing good. I want to make sure that I didn't miss out on something, but I guess it's a little further down. Yep, okay. Safe. Because I haven't really set up God's authority in creation yet, and I want to make sure that I do that. <clears throat> so, what is submission? First, submission is a disposition to honor and affirm a husband's authority and an inclination 
to yield to his leadership. Okay? John Piper puts it this way. Submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I do not flourish when you are passive and have and I have to make sure that the family works. But the attitude of Christian submission also says it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know that I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Because Christ is my King. So, second, submission is fundamentally an attitude or, or act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why wives are called to submit. It's an act of obedience to Christ. Third, submission is a commitment to support one's husband in such a way that he may reach his full potential as a man of God. Often we don't think about this in terms of, of submission. But this is part of God's intended goal. So that your future husband or your husband may reach his full potential as a man of God. And I can't tell you how huge this is for a man. I can't tell you how valuable this is. When I think about our relationship, my relationship with Phyllis, you know, day to day I often miss out on some of the ways that that Phyllis does this. But when I look at our lives as a whole, I see this pattern, this growing pattern of submission to my leadership. From the early days when we just got married and she's carrying band equipment and she's selling merch, you know, and and she's helping, then later she's helping me to raise support to be an associate pastor. And then later on she decides she's willing to let us use our savings to put me through seminary. And then while I was in seminary, just dealing with me as I worked full time, you know, as I worked almost full time, as I served in the churches as a full time student, I barely slept. I was pretty much terrible to deal with. But I mean, it was bad. I mean, it's bags under my eyes. It's horrible. I mean, she was pretty much the one that signed me up for my first trip to India, though it was her heart's desire to go overseas. <laughs> She followed me on this fool's errand to come up here to a hardened college town, one that we'd never been to, so that I might risk for Christ. <laughs> and then she got tired of me, so she sent me to India again. <laughs> oh. But, you know, the reality is this could go on and on. I could give list after list after list after list. But it is a joy and it is, it is amazing to see how God has, has allowed her to submit to my lead and what a difference that has made in my life and has helped me to grow into the band that God wants me to become. It's huge. Phyllis is still very independent. She's still very challenging, very thought-provoking. But she's submitting to Christ. And her submitting to Christ is allowing her to submit to me and is making all the difference in our life and our marriage. I can tell you guys, the divorce rate in our family is 90%. 90%. We don't know what it looks like to have a healthy marriage. We hadn't seen it. 
But by the grace of God, we've, we've been brought into and surrounded by people who, who do have that. And we've learned from God's word. And over time, people have poured into us and it's made all the difference. And I'm eternally grateful. But why is it fitting in the Lord? I mean, Paul goes on to say that the submission of wives to their husbands is fitting in the Lord. It means that it's proper, it's good, it's right for all those who belong to Christ. Ephesians two or Ephesians five twenty two through twenty four tells us that wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is to be head of the wife. What would happen if the church fails to submit to Christ? Well, it's not a Christian church, at least. It's just an assembly that stands for something other than Christ, right? And so husbands are to lead their wives. 1 Peter 3 1 through 6, commend Sarah for her willingness to submit to Abraham, to leave the pleasantries of Ur so that he might go and follow and obey God, to go to the land that God has for them. She's commended for her act of obedience as he acts in faith. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that submission of a wife to her husband is the natural order of things. And 1 Timothy 2, 8-15 through 15, tells us that male, male headship was rooted in creation. It's not the result of the fall. Many people will tell you that, that it was the result of the fall. But no, it was established prior to mankind's entrance into sin. And we can see this if we look at the creation account. For example, I mean, Paul says that uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2 that man was created first and then woman. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, well, woman, woman was created for man, not man for woman. You see that happen. Woman was created to be his helper. Third, Genesis 2.23 says that though they were equal, though they were bone of bone and flesh of flesh, Adam named Eve just as he did the other animals. Just as he did the other animals, he named her. This shows his authority over her because naming in the Old Testament is a way of establishing authority. Fourth, the commands in the garden were given to Adam before Eve was created, and then he was morally responsible to convey those to her. The reason why what she quotes to the snake was different than what God had said to Adam was probably because he went over and above the command of, of God. He probably said, you know what? Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Don't smell it, okay? Just don't go there. And that's probably what happened. Fifth, man initiates the marriage relationship by leaving and cleaving. Sixth, Satan tries to usurp God's established authority by not going to Adam, but by going to Eve. But then after they had sinned, after they would realized their sin and were hiding from God, God searches for Adam. He holds Adam into account, though God knows that Eve was the first to eat of the fruit. So that when we come to the fall in Genesis 3.16, we now see that the authority in relationship will be difficult, just as childbearing and work will now be difficult. But none of these were established post-fall. Work was there in the garden, and it wasn't difficult. It was a good and glorious thing. It was only after the fall that it became hard. Childbearing, though they had not bore any children yet, was their pre-fall. It was only after it that it became 
painful. Okay? I don't think that Adam and Eve were were originally created without genitalia or reproductive organs, and then suddenly that happened post-fall. All right? I think that they were there. They just hadn't been employed reproductively yet. Okay? And so like that, the authority in the relationship was there prior to the fall, but it was after the fall that things became difficult because the woman's desire would be for her man, for her husband, and he would rule over her with force. That's where it became difficult. So this is the authority structure that God, as ruler of the cosmos, has put in place from all creation, and therefore it is binding for all creation. And if you are a Christian, if you've identified that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, Paul says that it is fitting to maintain God's established authority structures. And here's a neat thing, too. We don't often realize this, but there's... There's authority structure in the Trinity. Do you realize that? Though the Father, Son, and Spirit are completely equal. Completely equal. The Son submits to the Father. And the Holy Spirit glorifies both the Father and the Son. Bruce Ware, in his book on the Trinity, he points out that that this is analogous of the relationship in marriage where though they are equal, though the woman and the children are no way inferior to the husband, the wife submits to the, the husband, and the children obey both the parents, the, the husband and the wife, the father and the mother, just like in the Trinity. So according to this passage, the proper way for wives to glorify Christ in their homes is to submit to their husbands by recognizing that this is God's intention, God's intentional authority structure. Your husband is under the authority of God. And you are called by Scripture to a sacrificial, a selfless loyalty to your husband. This is how you glorify Christ in your home. Under the authority of God, under the authority of Christ, be subject to your husbands. You know, when I look at this text, I I ask the question, why address the wives first? I mean, if God has established this authority and, and man is the head and then it's the wife and then it's the kids, then why didn't he address the husband before the wife? And everything that I've read or everything that I've listened to that has addressed this issue, they all say the same thing. They say he dresses the wife first because no matter how, how desirous the man is to lead, how, no matter how much he loves, no matter how much he serves, no matter how much he sacrifices for, he cannot lead if she is unwilling to submit. If she's unwilling to subject herself to his leadership, to his authority, he cannot fully be the head of the home. I mean, just as a coach can't lead a team to victory if the quarterback is calling different plays. Or, as a pastor of a church, cannot lead a congregation if they're at war and at odds against him. Or, the president of the nation cannot truly lead that nation if they're trying to impeach him. A husband cannot truly lead his wife if she is unwilling to submit to his leadership. It can't happen. He can love her. He can serve her. He can sacrifice for her, but he cannot truly lead her if she refuses to submit. And so Paul addresses wives first. 
So some application questions. Wives, all two of you in this room. <laughs> Are you willing to submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord? Not following him, him into sin, you know, not because it has to be fitting in the Lord. Are you seeking to glorify Christ in your relationship? Is your desire to see him reach his full potential in Christ? Or are you putting your own interests first? Unmarried women. Numbers are a lot bigger now. (laughs) Do you see how submitting to a husband is glorifying to the Lord? Do you see it from Scripture? Do you see that that mandate in creation and how that remains? Are you truly willing to voluntarily yield yourself to the leadership of another? And to the unmarried men who are pursuing or desiring to pursue such an unmarried woman, does this prospective wife display a a yielded disposition, first to the Lord, but then with loyalty towards you? Now we turn to the husbands. Verse 19 tells us that Christ is glorified when husbands lovingly lead their wives. Now, if you men have been sitting there and you've just kind of been wringing your hands, like, ah, look at that. I'm in authority. I'm the head. Well, let me tell you, dirtbag, he has something to say to you as well. Okay? Verse 19 says, Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay? This passage is not a command for men to rule their wives, but to love their wives. It is not meant for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. It does not make you superior, nor does it give you the right to issue commands and make all the decisions without considering your wife. Where you're ultimately responsible for making the decision is when there's, there's, it's pressed. It's come to the point where it has to be decided and you haven't come to terms yet, or if you all both are just kind of ambivalent, you are now the one responsible ultimately for making that decision. But not that you make all the decisions. <clears throat> Headship is a responsibility. It's not a right. You have the authority to serve. You have the opportunity to lead. And you lead with gentleness and sensitivity, showing her honor so that your prayers might not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. It's limited and constrained by Scripture. You are never allowed to lead in a way that is contrary to the Word of God. You're not allowed to do that. Your authority is a derived authority, an authority that is derived from God's authority. You are still under Christ's authority, and every action, every thought, every word, every decision is meant to honor Him. So you see, Christian headship is always God-directed and others-oriented. It's not self-fulfilling. This is not the better position. It's the more, the more accountable position. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Here we get a better picture of how we are to use our delegated authority that we have from God. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Guys, this ought to hit you like a ton of bricks. I don't care whether you're married or not. This ought to hit you right in the face. How are we to love our wives? With a selfless love, with a sacrificial love. We are to love our wives with a sanctifying love, a love that helps her to reach her full potential in Christ. This is a love that allows her to reflect the glory of Christ that is in her. This is a love that lifts her up that puts her on display so that when others see her, they see the glory of Christ. This is a supporting love. It is a sustaining love. It is a savoring love. As we seek to nourish and cherish her, as Christ does the church. This is humbling. Oh. <laughs> God has been working on me this week. Man, this is why I didn't want to preach this sermon. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I was sitting up in, my, in our room on Thursday. I have my, my desk up there. I'm writing this sermon. I'm reading this passage, and I'm breaking down. It is, I just, I'm weeping. And Phyllis, she comes upstairs, and she's she's just innocently enough, she's looking for some toys that Gabe left up in the room, right? And she's like, she's just kneeling around, and she, and she looks at me, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a dirtbag! <laughs> like, and I... And I had to repent to her. I read this passage to her and I told her, I have failed you so many times. I have failed you. I have failed to love you in a way that sanctifies you. I have failed to lead you in a way that reflects that when I hold you up, the glory of God is reflected. I, I've treated so many times like it's my thing and your thing and we're just going to come together when we need to, but it's really about me and then it's about you rather than nourishing you, rather than cherishing you, rather than holding you up in this way. <laughs> oh. Break, breaking the, the sensitive moment with the, the paper towels, but... But that's the reality. I mean, she's just up there and she's looking for these toys. And I had to, I had to confess to her. I had to repent to her. And that's what this passage is meant to do, right? I mean, there's no relationship, no matter how good, that's perfect. I still have a lot to learn. We all still have a lot to learn. But are we going to do this? It's a good moment for us. It's a good moment. So I'm thankful that I'm crying <laughs> now because God is clearly at work on me even now. <clears throat> you know, as men, 
We so often abuse our authority. We're harsh with our wives. We try to rule over them by force. We become embittered towards them. We do this when we love conditionally. When we say, hey, I'll love you if and when you submit to me. Or when we lead without expressing honor and gentleness and sensitivity and care and consideration. This is what I'm more guilty of, just kind of being ambivalent emotionally. Just like if you have a flower and you give it water and you give it good soil, but you keep it in the dark, away from the warmth of the sun, that flower will never grow. That flower will never bloom. She has got to feel my love for her. And you have got to be careful to do that because we as men are prone to turn that aspect off. Especially the more comfortable we get. We will turn that off. And a flower cannot grow apart from the warmth of the sun. So your wife will not bloom. She will not be sanctified if you are cold and ambivalent towards her. Even if you continue to make decisions and lead your family in a sense. We cannot go through life with this his and hers mentality. This is my thing and this is her thing. And we come together sometimes. This too is harsh. This too is embitterment. This too is failing to love as Christ loved the church. You see, if you are seeking your own glory or your own good, if you husbands or would-be husbands are being nagging and impatient because yes, men can do that too, then you're failing to love her. Remember when we talked a few weeks ago about love, so that love is an impartial, self-sacrificing commitment to act for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of their response, reception, or reciprocity. You're to do it 100% of the time, all the time, even if she shows nothing in return. You still love, you still serve, you still sacrifice, you still pray that one day she might submit herself so that you can lead with your full potential. But until then, you have this obligation to not be embittered towards her, to not be harsh with her. You are to love her as Christ loved the church. So husbands, got three of you now, how are you doing this? How are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you, are you doing it in a way that sacrifices for, in a way that serves, in a way that aids her sanctification? To you unmarried men, you need to be thinking about this now. How will you seek the glory of Christ rather than yourself in your love interests? And to you unmarried women who are here, that perspective love interest, is he ultimately concerned about your good? Does he want to love you in a way that is going to honor Christ, that is going to make much of him, that is going to help you to grow in godliness, to become more and more like Christ? Is he helping you to behold your Savior? Or is he seeking his own honor and glory and self-satisfaction? Paul then moves on from marriage relationship to that of parents and children. And in verse 20, he says that Christ is glorified when children obey their parents. He says, children, obey your parents in everything. 
in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, given our time and context, I'm not going to spend as much time on this. I mean, we, we don't have any true children in the room, and, and what we do have are kind of tweens, right? They're kind of in between being a teenager and being a self-sufficient young adult, right? All of you are kind of there, right? Sort of in between. Uh, so we need to kind of deal with it with that perspective in mind. Children who are under the care, children are those who are under the care, guidance, protection, and provision of parents. So Paul is obviously including children who are old enough to understand what he's saying here. He's addressing children. And so those of you who are tweens, he's including you to some extent if you're able to understand what he's saying. You know, if your education has allowed you to do that, then this includes you. Um, he says, obey. Listen to, follow, be subject to your parents in all things. That means obey your parents in all things, in everything. In everything, obey your parents. You should defer to them. You should follow them. You should honor them. If your dad asks you to take out the trash, guess what you need to do? Take out the trash, right? It doesn't matter whether or not you're 18 or, or 19 or almost 20. You do what they ask you to do. You show them honor in that way. In fact, disobedience to parents is found in two lists, in Romans chapter 1 and in 2 Timothy 3, as horrible sins of a degenerate society that fails to honor God. Right up there with malice and murder and all this kind of stuff is disobedience to parents. But... So children, you should obey your parents in all things. But like headship and submission, this is not a blind, passive compliance, right? This is not a childish subservience, but a humble yieldedness to the established authority structure. Okay? This doesn't mean that you should follow your parents into sin, or when they're leading you in a way that, that directs you away from Christ, or is not fully gospel-centered. If your parents are asking you to do something that is less than God's standard, and you know this, you have to act upon conviction following first Christ. But in issues of dishes and garbage, you obey your parents. Right? <clears throat> this verse is not meant for us to think that a child should not think and, and use biblical discernment and follow Christ when parents are in error. Because the reality is, your parents are fallible. They're going to make mistakes, just like you are going to make mistakes. And it is possible, it is possible to humbly, respectfully honor your parents when you commit to obeying Christ when they are not. And this is one of those things that's hard to understand. If the scripture says, obey your parents in everything, honor them in everything, well, how do I do that when they're wanting me to do this other thing? And I'm, I know that this is hitting some of you in this room right now. I know that some of you are thinking about this deeply. But the reality, again, is that they are fallible. How do I honor my parents and obey my parents when God is calling me and the Bible is clearly directing me in another way? Again, they're sinners. You have to go first with Christ. You have to first obey the convictions that come from Scripture, from truth. 
Even if they're just kind of stagnant. Maybe they're not, not fully disobedient. Maybe they're just kind of ignorant. You still have an obligation to follow Christ. To do what honors Him. What glorifies Him. What He has commanded. And you do this humbly. You do this respectfully. You do this lovingly. You do this just like John Piper in that analogy with the wife and the husband. It's not my desire to buck against this authority structure. But I can't follow you in this path. I love you. I respect you. I am grateful for you. But I can't do that. That's how you handle that situation. When it's a preference issue, you are under the care and the authority of your parents, then obey them. But when their direction is less than God's standard, your allegiance is first to Christ. And when children obey their parents, it pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1-3 says that, that this is right. That in obeying this command, which is an allusion to one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, it will go well for you. You will receive blessing as you obey your parents, as you do what is pleasing to the Lord. So doing what is fitting to the Lord is the same as glorifying or reflecting Christ, which is the same as doing what is pleasing the Lord, and it results in blessing. Now I bring that up because I don't want to to strip this as like, okay, children get a blessing when they obey, but wives don't, or husbands don't, because it's all the same. Doing what is fitting in the Lord is the same as honoring and glorifying the love of Christ as you love your wife, as Christ loves the church, as is pleasing the Lord in your obedience in that time. And the result is a blessing. So fitting in the Lord, reflecting, glorifying Christ, pleasing the Lord, and receiving a blessing are one and the same. As we seek the glory of God, we get the good. We get the good. Not materially, not in terms of health and wealth, but we get God. That's the ultimate good. We get God. So the blessing comes from obedience. So whatever our lot, we are to make it our aim to please Him. And this includes the role of parents, because Christ is glorified when parents train their children. Verse 21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 makes it clear that parents have the responsibility towards their children not just to get them to blindly comply with all of their rules and regulations, but to train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are to teach, to reprove, to correct to train our children in righteousness that they may be competent, equipped for every good work. The root of the word parent means literally means nourisher, protector, upholder. Parents are responsible to care for, to provide for, to guard their children physically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually. And though this verse is addressed first to fathers as head of the family, Both share in the responsibility to train up their children. 
We don't question when the Bible says brothers, and is referring to brothers in Christ, that it doesn't include women, so as when it addresses fathers, though they are the authority in that family relationship, it includes the mother as well. Both of you, the parents, have the responsibility to train their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The father serves as the one who is ultimately responsible to make sure that that gets done. So when it says do not provoke, it is saying, parents, don't discipline your children in a way that will exasperate them, that will anger them, that will cause them to become discouraged. Now, this doesn't mean that we should avoid disciplining them or instructing them in any way that might cause them to have a negative emotion in the moment. Because what discipline is pleasant in the moment? But we're talking about a lifelong pattern of discouragement, of anger, of exasperation. Instead, we are to to be careful to reflect the love, the patience, the mercy, the hope, the justice, and the resolve of Christ as we train them up. We are to discipline them and instruct them in a way that leads them their hearts towards Christ rather than causing them to harden their hearts against God. That's what that passage means. That's, so we're, when we discipline, when we instruct, we have to make sure that we're not provoking them in that way. But you know what? We can provoke in an entirely different way too. We can provoke when we make it a priority to do other things, to seek other things, to put other things before Christ. We can do this in good ways uh, when we put jobs and school over and above following Christ. On my way here, I, I drove past the soccer fields. And there were thousands of kids out there. I'm thinking, Sunday morning, I'm on my way to church. And the priority for those families in that moment is soccer. And we can provoke our children to become discouraged in the Lord by failing to instruct them in the Lord. Not just neglecting discipline, but neglecting the instruction as well. And we need the church to do that. Now, I'm not condemning these folks because they played soccer on a Sunday morning, okay? Don't hear that. But I know from my family, that became an idol in our lives. We were defined by the traveling baseball team and the traveling softball team. And all summers long, we were gone every Sunday morning. Because that was what was most important. And it's a stinking game. It is a game. It's the thing that frustrates me more than anything about it. But anyway, rather than provoke them to become angry with God, and we do this when we discipline harshly, when we discipline unlovingly, but when we fail to instruct them towards Christ, we, they become angry with God. Instead, we are to motivate them to be more like Christ. Rather than discourage them from thinking that God could ever be pleased with them, we are to encourage them to find their hope, to find their joy, to find their peace, their comfort, their heart's desire in Jesus. That's what we are to do. Now, I've got to stop right here. <laughs> I just have to. <laughs> We've gone long, you know. This is a big topic. Uh, but I want you to know that this is a big 
deal to us. We care about this. Redeemer Church has made this our core value because we want to see this happen. I want to grow in this. I want my kids to be encouraged in the Lord because of this. I care about you and your families or your future families, and I want to see that happen. And I want to push you guys towards that now. That's why this is a core value, something that drives us, something that's going to define this. And us as a church, because we want to be much about reflecting the glory of Christ in our homes. We want to see redemption lived out in the home. We don't want you to think for a second that you can pursue Christ when you're all by yourself, sitting on your couch, or up in your quiet place, wherever that is, to the neglect of everyone else that lives around you. Because it's not possible. You might be able to deceive yourself into thinking you're spiritual there. And you might come to church on Sunday and put up that plastic face, but that front is gone when you're at home. And you know it. How are you going to deal with it? We want to help you in that. Whether that be in life transformation groups or community groups or in mentoring or when we're uh, gathered on Sunday mornings hearing preachings or, or, or when we're together doing counseling of some type. On, we're, we're going to deal with this. We're going to help you walk in this. We're going to walk in this together. Because the family is important. We want our families to be clear reflections of God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for this reminder of the importance of family. God, we, we thank you first and foremost that you have adopted us into your family. That we're now sons and daughters with you. That we are fellow heirs with Christ. That we are now brothers and sisters to one another. We're now a part of the family of God. And Lord, we pray that that same sort of adoption, that same sort of love, that same sort of mercy will find its way into our homes. That Christ would be honored and glorified in our different roles and responsibility. As, as wives are, are subject to their husbands, as husbands are lovingly leading their wives, as children are obeying their parents, and as parents are diligent to train up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God, I pray that Christ would be first in our lives and that every aspect would be a reflection of His glory. That every aspect of our lives would be changed because we have an authority. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, we pray for the grace to walk in this. We pray in confidence knowing that Your grace has led us this far and Your grace will lead us home. And we pray that it will lead us right home after this to our homes to our front doors, and we will be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.